Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to be. It's going to take us a minute to get there, so you're going to have to hold on and, and kind of hang tight. We're going to have to build a little bit of biblical theology before we can get to Ephesians chapter 5. But go ahead and put a thumb in that. Um, Ephesians chapter 5, that's, that's where we're going to eventually um, land today. <clears throat> I, I want to tell you as we just start today that... Uh, this one feels like an overwhelming thing to try to talk about. Um, I, I grew up one of three boys, and so I'm not a crier, right? I mean, you'd have to like break four bones, and like one of them's popping out somewhere, and then you cry. That, that's how, okay? But Friday, I'm sitting here writing this message in a coffee shop, public coffee shop, right? And man, I, I just bust out um, hands in, or face in the hands um, as I just think about the huge hopes I have for this crew of people, um, the Stonegate family. Um, when I think about the biblical reality and the biblical beauty of marriage and what I hope for your marriage and my marriage and for where like, I know how far I am from it and how far I know a lot of you are from it, right? And so as, as I try to unpack this and try to write something um, that would be biblically faithful and yet compelling, Knowing that if God does not move in you, like if the Holy Spirit doesn't make these things that we say in, in this biblical truth that we're going to walk through, if he doesn't make that beautiful, you'll never go after it. And so I, just the feeling of we're so God dependent this morning. I am so dependent upon God to give the sort of words um, that would be faith, like wise words, right? That would be faithful to the Bible and compelling to you. And you and I are so compelling are so dependent upon the Holy Spirit to make those things compelling to us. And so I, I want to start just by praying for you this morning, um, as we kind of walk through this, that, that the Holy Spirit would speak to you in, in really profound and good ways today. Can I do that for you? Why don't you bow with me? God, I, I pray just for, for good strength today, for good clarity. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters across this room. God, that you would get our hearts to a position that they are ready and willing to repent. Ready to run to you. God, as we talk about what could be difficult for some people in this room that are in difficult seasons in their marriages right now, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit might strengthen and encourage. And God, I pray that your gospel might empower us to live and lay down our life in such a way that it would bring great glory to you. So God, help us. In your good name, amen. Let, let me start with two statements to kind of preface where we're going this morning. Statement number one is, and I think you would definitely agree with this one, is that we live in a culture that, that marriage needs to be redeemed. Like culturally, marriage needs to be redeemed for us, right? I mean, we live in a culture that has devalued, has redefined it, has cheapened marriage, has pushed it to the side. Like we live in a culture that needs marriage redeemed. That needs to see the biblical beauty of it. I mean, would we all agree with that? That this is our cultural just landscape. Uh, and we could throw out statistic after the six. I'm, I'm not going to go there, but we would all, like, we, we've heard these statistics of how many marriages end in divorce, right? I mean, we know where most marriages go. And that doesn't even count the ones that are living under the same roof, in the same house, but have just divorced in their lives, right? I mean, we need marriage redefined in our culture. Now, now, I think this is the more penetrating truth for us today. Is not only does the culture need it redeemed, but the church needs it redeemed. Of all the people on the planet 
that should be able to show what marriage can be, should be, and could be. It is the people of God, right? I mean, these are the people that should be able to display what marriage can be. But here's the truth about the people of God. As many or more of our marriages implode than people who do not know God. Now, isn't that an ironic thing? We need marriage redeemed in here. You need it redeemed in your heart. I need it redeemed in my heart. The church needs marriage redeemed. Here's the problem with the church, right? And you could just throw our church in here. Is we have been enculturated. Now, I think that word might be made up, all right? And so let me try to define that made up word for you. That means that the way culture views life is more normal to us than how God views life. That's what it means to be enculturated. And so can we just admit that in a lot of different areas, not just marriage, marriage is one of the many, that in a lot of different areas, we have been enculturated. The way we view marriage, the way we think about marriage, the way we feel about marriage, the way we counsel marriage, the way we stay in marriage, the way we love in marriage, the way we lay down our life in marriage, it has more of the culture's shape and more of the culture's view than God's. And so we need marriage redeemed. Okay, so it would probably be wise for all of us just to start with this assumption that you have been enculturated, right? That not just them, not just that church, but our church. And not just that person, but us. Now, to varying degrees, that is true for every one of us across this room. That we have been enculturated. And so we need so badly for God to speak in really powerful ways to us when it comes to marriage. We need the Bible to redeem this thing for us. To show us the biblical beauty of it. I mean, this is my hope for you. When I start a wedding, like when I do a wedding, this is how weddings go down, right? Um, I walk in with the groom and his, his men kind of lined up behind him. And we walk to the middle of a stage like this. The groom is typically standing right here. And here comes the bridesmaid. Uh, they had this long, weird march, right? Where they're kind of staring at you the whole time they're walking down. You got to try it up here. It's really awkward. And so, so they come by, they, they kind of take, take their stand. And then here comes the lady, the bride. She walks down with her dad. And I ask the dad, who gives this woman to be wed? And he says, her mother and I. And then he unites that girl, his daughter, and that man. And they look at me with the congregation behind them. And this is the first thing I say in weddings. I look to the people around them, their friends, their family, right? I look to the people around them and say, you have a great responsibility in the life of this marriage. You have a responsibility to pray for this couple, to help this couple, and to encourage this couple to keep the covenant that they are making today before God, before each other, and before you. And then I give the congregation two things to pray. I'm going to give you the first one now, and then we're going to end with the second one. Here's the first thing I, I ask the congregation to pray for that couple. Is that this couple would be abnormal. Thing number one to pray for them. That they would have an abnormal marriage. Look around at marriages. Do you want normal, right? 
I don't want normal. I don't want normal for you. We need to have very abnormal marriages. This is the first thing I asked them to pray for this couple, is that they would have distinctly different values and hopes and dreams for their marriage. It needs to be, it needs to be redeemed in us. The, the, the way we love and lay down our life, the way we think about it, the way we feel about it, needs to be different, abnormal. We've been enculturated. Uh, okay, so, so with all that said, here's what I'm going to plead with you to do. Then we're going to jump into what I, the question I want to try to answer today. Now, I want to plead with you over the next few weeks, for those of you who are married in the room, to crawl up on God's little surgical table, and lie still as he takes his sin-destroying scalpel and does surgery on you, right? And surgery is never comfortable, right? I mean, it's going to cut through nerves and guts are exposed. That is the only way cancerous sin is going to be cut out of your heart and out of your marriage. And so I, I just want to plead with you. Nobody is expecting you to be Superman in your marriage. Nobody is expecting your marriage to be perfect. Nobody is. So you don't have to wear a facade as if it is. We can all admit in here that our marriages are hard. It's by God's design for them to be hard, right? So they're hard. And, you, and across this room, we're in all different ranges. Some of us in here right now have simple patterns and tendencies that are leading our marriages to disaster in the near future. Others of us in here, we come in feeling pretty good, but under the surface, there's all sort of little pink elephants in the room, right? We just choose to kind of work around them. And so there's this whole range. I just want to plead with you. Get your heart ready to repent and run to God. And this is not about, as we kind of walk through the next few weeks, this is not about God changing your spouse. This is about God changing you and your view of marriage and the sin in your heart. Okay, so, so here's where we're going today. We're going to take a, a step back from marriage and try to answer this question. What is marriage for? Like, why did God give it to us? What, what's the purpose of marriage? What, what's, it, what's the goal of this thing? Okay, so that's the question. Next week, we're going to look at the idea of the wife's role. The week after that, the husband's role. So this week, panoramic picture. What, what's the purpose? What, what is marriage for? I'm going to answer it in three statements. And then with each statement, try to draw out some implications of that. Okay, so three statements. Here's the first one. Statement number one, what is marriage for? It goes like this. Marriage is for the glory of God. That's what marriage is for, right? Now, I hope that didn't disappoint you. Okay, marriage is for the glory of God. Okay, so now take a step out of this. Marriage is one subset of what the... Okay, so, so the glory of God is, is what all of life is for. Any question that you start out like this, what is that for? At the bottom level, the foundational level, every one of those answers are the glory of God. This is what God is doing in the world. Now, if you read from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, you're going to see that the Bible doesn't just say this. The Bible screams this. That everything God does is for the glory of God. This is what God is up to. It is the reason you were created. God created you for his glory. This is um, Isaiah 43, 7. That, that God creates you for his glory. He formed you for his glory. That means that you were created to love God and live 
with God, connected to God. And as you do that, you display God to the world. You take God public as you love him and stay connected to him. This is what you're created for. If you want to know where like joy and purpose and meaning, all those things are found in what you're created for. So if you want to live in what you're created for, you live for the glory of God. You were created to be a window for the world to see God. You get that? I mean, you were created for that, to be a window for the world. So when they look at you, they see what God is like and what a life lived in love of God is like. You're created to be a window for the world to see God. This is what God is doing. Everything God does is a window for the world for them to see him through it. This is what he's doing. So if you want to look at Genesis 1, this is why he creates. Psalms 19 says he created all these things so the heavens would declare the glory of God. So this is why he does everything he does. It's why sometimes he saves the people of Israel from suffering. The Bible says for his name's sake, for his glory. Other times he walks with them through their suffering. He doesn't save them from it. He walks with it through them. So this is why God does everything he does. It's for his glory, right? Okay, uh, Romans 11 says it this way. At the end of Romans 11, Paul has just unpacked God's mysterious work in saving people. It's a, it's a wild few chapters. At the end of that, here's what he says. And all things, all things are, are from him. So they start with him. They're through him. So they exist in him. And they're all for him or to him. This is all things. And then it says this, to him be the glory of God forever. This is what God is up to. Welcome to the agenda of God on the planet. This is the agenda of God. Colossians 1 says it this way. That all things were created through Christ, through him. This is Colossians 1.16. All things were created kind of from him. They, they all came by him. He is the creator. All things by him. So, and then it gives a list of things. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible, invisible. Everything you see created by him. And then it ends with this statement. It says, and they're all through him. And they're all for him. Now that for him does not mean that, that, that he was lonely and so he needed to create the world so he would kind of have this need of his met. That's not what it means. That for him means that God created everything, does everything so that the world would have a window to see him. That's what it means. For him is so that the world would see that God is center stage. For him is so that everything he does sets himself in the center of the stadium. So that all eyes in the universe can look at him. See and savor him. Run to him. The God that's supremely valuable. Supremely worthy. Inexhaustibly satisfying. This is what God's up to. Okay, now this is the implication for your marriage. Marriage is about the glory of God. All things are. Marriage is one of the things that are. Marriage is about the glory of God. Two implications. One goes like this. That means that marriage, your marriage, exists more for God than for you. Your marriage exists more for God than it does you. Okay, now look at me right here. Marriage is a temporary reality. It's a temporary arrangement. Mark 12 is going to say that, that in heaven, there is no such things as earthly marriages. They all go away. It's a temporary arrangement meant to point you to an eternal reality, namely God. Marriage exists more for God than for you. Second implication goes like this. For your marriage to be God-glorifying, 
You have to know the God it's intended to glorify. Okay, now this is profound. Because I think this is counterintuitive to a lot of us. See, I think a lot of us think that no, what our marriage needs is we need to get four more books to read about marriage. That is not what you supremely need in your marriage. If you want to know what you need most in your marriage, it is a view of God. It is to know God. So let me ask you this question. Do you know God? This is where marriages start. This is the starting point of it. Do you know God? Now, here, here's the, how I think most of us answer that question when I say it. Well, yeah, I know God. I mean, I think that's the, the predominant answer across the room. Is yeah, I, I know God. Okay, here's the problem with our answer. It's, it's a yes, but it's very ambiguous and it's not vivid. It's in black and white. There's no color to it. So, so to have... A simple yes will not get you a God-glorifying marriage. Okay, that's not where a God-glorifying marriage lies. It, it lies in a rich answer to this next question. Okay, so if you know God, what do you know about him? Okay, so, so you know God. What do you know about that God? And here's what I find with that question. That answer is really short. That answer is really short. And if you want to know what your marriage needs more than anything else, it is a breathtaking view of God. That's what your marriage needs. Men, if you want your marriage to be God-glorifying, it means that you need a breathtaking view of God. Ladies, if you want your marriage to be God-glorifying, it starts when you have a view of God that is breathtaking. You don't just know God, but you know God. That's where marriages start singles. If you want to know the best way to prepare yourself for marriage, it is to know God. That's where it starts. And so what do you know about God? When you answer the question, what is it that you know about him? What comes to your mind? I mean, the things like the fact that he's eternal, that he has always existed. When you were like a twinkle in your mom and dad's eye, right? He existed. He has always existed. He always will exist. He is outside of time. Sees all time, your beginning and your death, equally vivid. I mean, do we get these breathtaking glimpses of God? When you think about the knowledge of God, that there is no calculus equation that he didn't create, right? That he knows all things. I mean, when you think about the wisdom of God, he needs no like, counsel, right? He has no confidence. He is perfectly wise. When you think about... The power of God, right? That, that can create, which is the speaking of his mouth, creates. The speaking of his mouth can calm waters. The, when you think of the providence of God, how God can take everything on the planet, kingdoms rising, kingdoms falling, economies growing, economies crumbling, and every detail of your life and weave that into a perfect tapestry. When you think about the patience of God that's long-suffering with your gradual growth, right? I mean, if I were God, I would have already killed me, right? That's so patient with you. When, when you think about the authority of God, that I mean, just look in the Bible. Find an instant. I mean, just find an instant where God says, that tree wither, and it doesn't. Where God says, that storm, calm, and it doesn't. 
and you won't find it. Think about the authority of God that everything he commands comes to pass. Think about the wrath of God, right? That's a little uncomfortable that the Bible says at the end of the age that that people are going to cry out for the mountains to crush them before they look God in the face. Think about the justice of God where all sins will be brought to justice either on the cross or in an eternity away from God. Think about the love of God, right? Think about this love of God that looks upon rebellious people, looks upon the people who are going to sinfully slaughter him and lays down his life for them. Think about the grace of God. Look at me here. Think about the grace of God. You did not earn it. You did not merit it. It's not that God looked at you and thought, well, that that one really deserves, you didn't, you didn't contribute anything to that, right? And God looks at you and sets his affection on you. Until you get a breathtaking view of God, your marriage will never be all that it's intended to be. This is where we start. We don't start with the marriage book. We start with God. This is where it is. I I love how John Piper says it. He says it this way. Until there is passion for the glory of God in the hearts of married people, their marriages will not reflect God. So let me ask you, is there passion for the glory of God? Is, there, is your heart captured by God? Do you have an awe-inspiring, breathtaking view of God? This is where marriage starts. Marriage is for the glory of God. Statement number two goes like this. What's marriage for? And we're, we're working our way to Ephesians 5. We're going to get there. Number two, reason number two, marriage is for your good. Marriage is for your good. Okay, now I need to zoom out again, though, because uh, there's all sorts of confusion on what our good is. So we need to back up and say, what is the good? So first of all, let's just back up and say, make this statement, that God is out for your good. If you are a redeemed person, one of God's, God is out for your good. That is a gospel promise of like a Romans 8, 28, that God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So God is out for your good, even when it doesn't feel like it. Even when you're Joseph in Genesis and you've gotten sold into slavery by your brothers, you're imprisoned falsely, right? God is working for your good. That's a gospel promise. So marriage is a subset of that, right? Okay, so so God is out for your good. Now here's the question. The question is, what is your good? So Romans 8.29 answers that. So you can't just memorize 8.28. You got to get the next verse. This was our last month's scripture memory, right? And and so it's not just that he's working all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. 29 says this, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. And listen to how and what he predestined you for. So that you would be conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8, 29. That is your good. So, So here's what we would say, that Christ is out for your good. God is about making you Christ-like. This is what God is up to. This is one of, God's, one of God's goals for you, is to make you look like Jesus. That's his goal. That's his goal with your life. This is what he's doing in you. This is why God says, I'm working all things for good, even when it doesn't feel like it, because I'm making you Christ-like. So God's goal in your life is Christ-likeness. Okay, now, now let's jump underneath that. 
And we're going to say this, that marriage is one of God's ways to make you like Jesus. Marriage is one of God's ways. Okay, now I, I need to confront, I think, a cultural statement that here's the ironic thing is I agree with this statement. I just don't agree with what people mean by it. Okay, so, so here's the statement. The statement goes like this. But surely God wants me happy. You ever heard that statement? But surely God wants me happy. Here's the thing. I agree with the statement. I just don't think I mean what most people I hear say it mean. So, so when I say God wants you happy, I, I would say it like this. That God is all about your lasting satisfaction and eternal joy. God is all about that. I mean, that is what God is up to. He is out for your good, and part of your good is your joy. He is out for that. But here's what I think people mean. Two misconceptions I think people mean with that statement. Number one, I think they mean temporal happiness. I think they literally mean that God is is more concerned that I feel like this is going to give me the most happiness. That God is most concerned that I feel like me doing this is going to be my best thing. God is not concerned with your temporal happiness. If he was, he wouldn't be a good dad to you. Because like every dad, sometimes we've got to take our sons into the back room and spank them. Right? And in Hebrews 12 says, God, those whom God loves, he disciplines. And so God is not just about your temporal happiness. Okay, so that's the first misconception. Here's the second one. Is that I think we're totally confused on what makes us happy. Right? Almost every time I hear that statement mentioned, it is to justify a sinful behavior. But surely God wants me happy. Even if that means turning my back on what I know God wants me to do. That is not true. God, God, okay, so, so it would be a true statement to say God is about your lasting happiness and joy. But it's not a true statement to say that that we can turn our back on God and find it. This is what sin is. It is turning your back and running at other things thinking they will give you what only God can. So so if you want to know at the end of the day what's going to make you most joyful, what's going to satisfy your heart, if you want to know what that is, listen to this. There's only one route to that. There's only one route to that satisfaction and joy. Holiness is the means to your lasting happiness. We getting that? Holiness, Christ-likeness, that is the means for you to be happy, your lasting happiness. So if you want lasting happiness, here's what that means. You need to be willing to let God chisel on you, get the scalpel out and start cutting surgically to get sin out of you because that is where your lasting happiness lies. Okay, so... Let's talk marriage here. Wouldn't we agree that marriage is a little bit difficult, right? I mean, just think about, like, think about this scene. Think about um, you waking up at 6 a.m. You grab your Bible, you get your cup of coffee, and you head to the back porch. You're taking in a sunrise, reading the scriptures, and literally, by the time you finish praying, you're literally swearing that God should have chosen you for one of the 12 disciples, right? Okay, this is that moment. Then all of a sudden, your spouse wakes up. She doesn't greet you with, what a great guy you are. He doesn't greet you with, I was just thinking about how thankful I am for you. It doesn't go that way. They knock on the back door and say, uh, 
you were really loud getting out of bed. You think we could, you think we could stop that? You left your towel on the floor. Look at the yard. That grass looks pathetic, right? Mow it. Marriage is difficult. Okay, now look at me here. It is difficult by God's design to make you like Jesus. That is why it's difficult. That's why. Because God wants to make you like Jesus. Listen, your marriage gives you the greatest opportunity to live out the radical demands of Scripture. Your marriage does that for you. I mean, think about a Luke 9, 23, right? Okay, you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. What is following Jesus costing you right now? You live in America, the richest country on the planet, right? And more than that, you live in suburbia, the richest place in the richest place on the uh, richest country on the planet. This is where you live. What is it costing you? I mean, anybody been beaten up lately, right? Probably not. So you want to know one of your God-given areas for you to live out the radical demands of Scripture? It is inside your marriage with people that know you and you know. I heard a pastor the other day talk about how he had a guy in his congregation that he was just like wearing him out on China. I want to go to China. I love the people of China. I'm going to go give my life to people of China. I need to get to China. How can I get there? And, And the pastor looked at him and said, you know why you love the people of China? Because you don't know Chinese people. That's why you love them. Because you don't know them. And you know why you don't speak like that about your wife? Because you do know her. You do know, you do know your wife. And she knows you. And that makes it a little bit more difficult to love people that way, doesn't it? I mean, love would be a lot easier if people weren't... Yeah, you get the picture, right? So your marriage is one of God's designed ways to make you like Jesus. I mean, this is it for you. Okay, now, I, th- this is one of like the top divorce excuses out there. We are incompatible. God is not shocked. That's what I want to say to that. God's not shocked by that. You're a woman. He's a man. Go figure, right? Enough said right there. Now, to complicate matters, he is a sinful man. You're a sinful woman. So is there a total lack of compatibility? Yes, there is a total lack of compatibility in your marriage. And that total lack of compatibility is God's design for you to look like Jesus. It's your design. It is your design to look like Jesus. I, I heard um, a, a, the story of a Puritan pastor back in maybe the 1700s, 1800s, where uh, a group of pastors got together And one of the pastors in there had an especially notorious, just difficult wife. I mean, everybody knew it. She was just that lady, right? Okay, so so in that meeting, one of the pastors said, uh, now I think we just need to pray for our wives and thank God for them. They pray, finish up, and then afterwards he thinks, oh no, I hope I didn't offend my, my brother over here who has this crazy wife. And so he goes to him and says, man, I apologize. I I hope that didn't offend you. I'm so sorry. And through tears, this guy looks back and says, you you need not apologize. I have more to be thankful for in my wife than any of you. And through tears, he says, she drives me to my knees and to God daily. 
Okay, now look at me here. And this is hard for me to say. Because I know that some of you feel acutely the pain of difficult marriages right now. But I want to encourage you that maybe a difficult marriage is to your best eternal benefit. And maybe God has specifically in his providence and his wisdom given you a difficult spouse right now, a difficult season of marriage to make you to make you look like Jesus for your lasting joy, for your lasting happiness. Maybe that's what God is up to. Marriage is a stream of God's grace into your life to sanctify you. That's what marriage is. It's for your good, to make you like Jesus. Here's the last one. Now we're to Ephesians chapter 5. And by the way, singles, if, if, if your goal in getting married is to solve a loneliness issue, get a dog, right? They don't talk back. They're a lot cheaper. Get a dog. But if your goal is to be like Christ, then get married. If your goal is, I want Jesus, then get married. That's what marriage does to you. That's what marriage design is for you. Okay, here's the last one. Ephesians 5. So here's what Paul's doing here. He's talking about how the gospel impacts relationships. Okay, so we, we're two marriage. We're to husband and wife. We're going to get to parenting. We're going to get to how this plays out in the workplace, how the gospel impacts relationships. So he's saying, verse 23 through 24, ladies, this is what it looks like for the gospel to impact your marriage, you in your marriage. Men, 25 through 30, this is what it looks like for the gospel to impact who you are in your marriage. Then he gets to verse 31, and he goes to Genesis 2. And he quotes Genesis chapter 2, that God made marriage. This is God's idea. It's God's design. God gave away the first bride. It is God's deal. And then he gives the, one of the purposes of marriage. Okay, and this is what he says in verse 32. This mystery, and a mystery in the Bible is not something that you can't figure out. It's something that was hidden, but is now revealed. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here's what he's saying. Marriage is a display of the gospel. Your marriage is meant to be a display of the gospel. That is why God gave you the gift of marriage. You have been given the gift of marriage so that you could give a picture of the gospel to the world. That's why. It's not so you can have your needs met. It's not so you can have somebody that kind of could comfort. It is so you can give a picture of the world or to the world of the gospel. That is why you get married. So this is, this is the imagery Paul gives here. If you want to know the covenantal love of Jesus, if you want to know the grace that, that Christ gives the church, if you want to know the love of Christ to the church, if you want to see all of these things, Paul is saying, all you should have to do is look at the Christian marriage. It's the display of it. So let me ask you the question. Is your marriage displaying the gospel? Is it displaying the gospel? Is it showing the grace, love, the stick to itness? Is it displaying all that Christ is for the church? This is what your marriage was meant to do. This is why God gave you the, the gift of it. It's, I'm going to say this again. It's not an eternal thing. 
It's a temporary thing to give a great temporary picture of what the gospel is to the world. Men, your marriage, and we'll, the ladies in here too, your marriage is the primary way you preach the gospel. Now, I want you to think about in the li- that in the life of your kids. Your marriage is the primary way you preach the gospel. In your family, your marriage is the primary way you preach the gospel. In my family, my primary way is that I preach the gospel is my marriage. It, it's the primary way that I preach it. So now it would be easy for you to say, no, I mean, you stand up on Sunday, you, you do it there. The primary way I preach the gospel is with my marriage. If my marriage contradicts my message, my message means nothing. Daddies, I want so badly for my kids to grow up and know Jesus, to love Jesus, to radically sacrifice in the cause of Christ around the world. I want that. And you know the primary way that I get to preach that and show that to them is in the way I lay down my life for Laura. And daddies, if our marriage is contradicting that message and that hope for our kids, we are sabotaging all we want to do in them and all we want God to do in them. Your marriage is a display of the gospel. It's painting a picture the question is, what kind of a picture is it painting? Okay, now I'm going to give you two ways that, that we can, can display the gospel in our marriage. Way number one is by living in God's design. Men, you are meant to be a picture of Christ's covenant love to the church. Ladies, you are meant to be a picture of the church's satisfying and joyful response to Christ. Okay, look at these comparisons in Ephesians 5. And we're going to talk about these more in the weeks to come, but look at, look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Look at, the, look at the comparison here. As to the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife. Here's the comparison. Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself the Savior. Verse 24. Now, here's the comparison. Verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I'm not going to take, we're going to define that, walk in that next week. Here's all I'm saying. Wives, if you walk out on, if you neglect, right? I mean, if you stick up a fist and say, no, this marriage is about me. I mean, when we do that in our marriage, here's what we show to the world. That Christ's love is not satisfying to us. But when we live in our marriage and lay down our life for our husbands, when we respond to his leadership, when we patiently model what a woman, then you show that Christ is satisfying. Now, now husbands, look at yours. It gets rougher for you, husbands. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Verse 28, comparison. In the same way, comparison here, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Another comparison. But we are members of his body, men. You walk out on your marriage. You stiff arm your wife. You, you act selfishly in your marriage. 
you live as if the world revolves around you in your marriage, then here's what you show. You distort God's love for the church. You, you show a distorted picture of that. But when, when husbands lay their life down for their brides, when they cherish them, when they nourish them, when they provide for them, when they sacrificially give for them, they show God's covenant love to his people. They show that God doesn't walk out on his bride, that God never turns his back on his bride, but God loves his bride and gives his life for his bride and sanctifies his bride. That's what you get to show. So we do that by living in God's design. So is your, is your marriage preaching that? Is it proclaiming that? Is it speaking that? Is it displaying the gospel in that way? Here's way number two, and we're, we're, all, we're getting there, okay? Way number two goes like this. Just real simple, by staying together. By staying together. Now, okay, I, I don't want to imply that staying together is the only goal of marriage, but on just a bottom line level here, it's staying together. And it's not just together. It is always giving, loving, moving toward, even when your spouse doesn't do it back. Okay, so this, this is the picture. It's staying together. If you need motivation when you have none other, when they are not loving you, if you need motivation to stay with your spouse, here it is. The way you stay with your spouse proclaims to the world, God stays with his bride. If you need motivation, there it is. It's God's picture to the world. Your marriage is. Okay, now, now here's the thing. It doesn't give a lot of qualifications. Now, I'm not saying everything I can say or could say about marriage. I'm saying everything I can in one sermon here, right? Okay, so, so staying together. Even when they are giving you nothing in return, staying together, sticking in there, always responding, always moving toward, even when they're offering nothing. Okay, now think about these words in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, I think Jesus says something really interesting. He says, you've heard it said that, that you love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, that's not right. That's not the spirit of the law. Here's what I'm telling you is that you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. Now, I don't want to equate your wife or your husband into the enemy, but here's what I do want to do. An enemy is somebody, they, I mean, they're offering you nothing. They have nothing to give you. There is no benefit to you in loving them, right? And here's what God is saying. The way you love your wife ought to be like that. He goes on to say that even pagans love people who love them. It takes, no, it takes no gospel in you to love a person that gives you $1,000. The typical man will kiss that guy, right? But it takes the gospel in you to love a person that feels and seems and maybe even is unlovable. It takes the gospel to do that. And this is what the gospel does in our life. Now, now here's how I want to kind of close up today. I've asked Brian and Gina McCutcheon to come up. And I, I want to just give, encourage, I, I want to try to give you an image because there's going to be days for you when your marriage seems like there's no hope, right? When it seems so dark that you can't get out of it. So I want to give you a visible picture of a couple who was there and God made a way out of it. So I, I want to I make sure this stays in your mind as you think about your marriage displaying the glory of God, sticking together even when it feels hopeless. So with that said, hi, Brian. Hi, Gina. Hi, Rodney. Got, uh, yeah. I, 
<laughs> there it is right there. Okay, this is Brian and Gina, and, and let me just start. I've got three questions for them. This is the first one. Um, why don't you just introduce kind of when you got married, how you got, I mean, just that picture of we were Brian and Gina, and now we're Brian and Gina together, that, sure. that picture. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm Brian McCutcheon. This is my lovely wife, Gina. Uh, we're, um, we're actually high school sweethearts. Oh, <laughs> yeah, there we go. High school sweethearts went to, uh, went to Baylor uh, together, Sikkim Bears. Um, <laughs> and we really had a relationship that uh, was typical of your high school kind of sweetheart, you know, get together and, and, and date and then, and then go to college and, and, and date in college. Uh, we actually broke up a couple of times in college um, in, in much the way typical couples uh, do in the sense of, hey, have we really dated around? And, and especially for me, of, uh, hey, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's another world out there. Let me, uh, let me go check that world out. And so uh, then we come back together. And, and so then after we left Baylor, we, uh, we got married. And um, from, from my perspective, it was very much a desire to uh, be all I could be. I had really the kind of atypical American dream in, in my mind. Uh, I was raised up in a suburban middle class family. I went to church on on Sunday some you know sometimes sometimes didn 't was a good bedside Baptist sometimes <laughs> and, the yeah, yeah. The, my dad owned his own company, a kind of entrepreneurial spirit, and, and I, was, uh, I was reading a lot of you know, g- good uh, motivational books at, at young ages and, and autobiographies of, of great people, and, and really was, was destined to be the next Bill Gates, in, in my mind. Um, and so it definitely had this American dream kind of picture, and, um, and, and so when we left uh, Baylor, well, obviously, you know, getting married was the, was the thing to do. And to have the the kids and the house and so on and so forth. So, what's uh, your perspective on that? Um, yeah, that was it. We had the big wedding. We got married. It was wonderful. Everything a girl ever dreamed Everything of, you huh? Ever wanted more. Right here. <laughs> See, the the whole Baylor thing is starting to explain this story just a little bit to me, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it um, it certainly for for both of us. Um, uh, we got into really the pattern of manipulation uh, for for our life in the sense of I was looking out for what I wanted. I had this picture of the American dream. I had my career. I was focused on my career. I was working the 80 hours a week. I was focused on making the six figures a salary and just being uh, wealthy and having this stuff. And then when we uh, decided to have children, because again, that's part of the picture, we had our son Taylor. And then from Gina's perspective, uh, her life being into being being a mom, right? And 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 that's who she was, and, and lived her life out for her. And and I was traveling again. Part of the part of the job was traveling a hundred percent. I'd fly out on Sunday and come back on uh, on Friday on, on Friday night. Uh, then there came a point when our son, you know, when he uh, uh, when Gina was pregnant with him, that realized, hey, this traveling thing is not very conducive to family life. And well, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a family guy, of course. So uh, we need to, I need to find a job that, that doesn't have me on the road. So we ended up moving down to, uh, to Austin. We actually were in Plano at the time. We moved down to Austin. Uh, I went to go work for uh, Dell and management there, and I was off the road. 
And so we built a house down there in, in, in Austin. And so here I was. I was off the road. Uh, and I was into my career. And I had, you know, like I've uh, uh, shared with some of you before, you know, here I was. I had the, the family, the job, the, you know, the two dogs, the two cats, the uh, two cars, the big house. I mean, what more could I have, right? Well, actually, there was a lot of emptiness in me because there was a still this desire to have something that still wasn't quite there. And unfortunately, through that process of just continually work hard and think only about me to the neglect of Gina and Taylor, um, I actually started to spend more time at work and with people at work than clearly I was with Gina and the family. And I met another woman at, uh, at work, and I had, uh, I had an affair with that woman. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, hey, you know, this other person's making me feel different, special. You know, it's all about me and completely neglecting Gina. <laughs> um, for me, it destroyed my life. It destroyed everything mm. about me. I've said recently, it, that moment I changed and I never went back to what I was, which was a good thing because I was all about me too. And the next year was pretty rough because I, we worked it out for a while. It, it didn't work. So I filed for divorce, and four months later, it was final. Yep, that's it. And this really turned the uh, you know, lives upside down, as you, can, yeah. as, as you can imagine. Because, again, for me, here this American dream, well, when you think of the American dream, getting a divorce and this happening that kind of shatters that American dream to a sense, right? Um, but for me as well, it was, again, all about me and, and me being controlling of everything. It, you know, Gina refers to me uh, back then as kind of this hyper-toy poodle, just always, like, had to be right. It was, it was all about me. It was, you know, I was a control. And I, uh, I you know, really uh, was a, the dominating factor in our marriage and really manipulated uh, Gina um, like, hey, when we uh, decided to get a Ford Expedition, because, you know, when you have a kid, you need an Expedition, so the Eddie Bauer luxury line. I did that when Gina was taking a nap and woke up, hey, the, the, the deal's done. Let's go, uh, you know, let's go get the, get the Expedition. Mm. So you, you weren't too happy about it. Um, so, yeah, I was very controlling. So if, if you're going to say, like, describe, like, maybe this would be a good question for Gina, and then eventually it got back to you, but just describe, like, what it felt like in the middle of husband walking out. Like, I mean, what, what is that picture as that goes down? It's like in the movies kind of thing. It's slow motion. Your whole world just crumbled in front of you. I was a mom. I was very young. I was 24, 25, 26. I was a stay-at-home mom, had no way of supporting myself. My husband just walked out. I have a baby. Oh, what do I do now? So it's your whole world stops because your whole world's over. Yeah. And it changes from that point on. Yeah. Who you are changes. For sure. Okay, so describe to us from there how God has brought you to here. Oh, you're so good. <laughs> you know, I was raised a Christian. You know, I remember kneeling by my mom's bed when I was eight years old and accepting Christ, right? And we would go to church here and there, here in the good old Bible Belt. 
but I never really grasped the gospel. And it wasn't until Gina and I were actually divorced and the relationship with the other woman didn't work out. Surprise. Hey, and guess what? Your personal life does affect your work life. So as I was rising up the career ladder at Dell, that started to be negatively impacted. And so here I was faced, uh, by this point, we had you know, sold the house that we built, we're in completely separate apartments. I was seeing Taylor on Wednesday and nights and every other Sunday night, and my world just came crushing down on me. And it was this one particular night of which I really had made the decision that I was going to, uh, uh, to, to end my life. I didn't really want to die, but I definitely uh, felt like just the pain had to end. And um, I've recently given a lot of thought about that particular night. And just to, just to know that even though I was running away from God during that time completely, that I was able to cry out and say, okay, God, if you do exist and you are who you are, I need, I need help. Because by that point, I knew that our relationship was over. And a kind of a warm peace came over me, and I was completely broken. And it was at that, uh, at that point through his providence that um, through my doctor, I was referred to a counselor who ended up being a biblical counselor. And we started kind of from scratch of who I was and why I had made the decisions I had made. And, and, and actually, I read the Bible for the first time in, in its entirety you know, past your typical first month of the one-year Bible, and started to understand maybe what does it mean to be a biblical man and a biblical husband, and so on and so forth, trying to understand the gospel. So God really started to, to work in, in, in my life and, and, and really start to transform and change my heart. Okay, so fast forward through a lot of pain and a lot of stories that make me look really bad. Um, I kind of did my own thing, kind of freaked out in life. And that God was kind of pushing me to, was kind of watching over me, pushing me towards him. And slowly over time, I was kind of watching him, didn't trust him for anything. We got to be better friends. We were on amicable terms for Taylor, discussion about him. And we slowly worked it out. And um, we remarried a year later, a little over a year later. And I struggle with when I remarried him, God was still working. I wasn't ready yet. I remarried him out of faith because I felt like God was telling me, this is the right thing to do. I've got your back. It's good. You're, you're okay. And so I kind of laugh now, but the whole wedding day, the second time, I looked like a deer in the headlights thinking, <laughs> I'm doing this again. I just left this, and I'm doing this again. I'm crazy. And I'm thinking, wow, she's really doing this again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was at the point I didn't tell my family. A good chunk of my family was getting married again. We just kind of did it, and um, I knew they would talk me out of it, and I knew that I would too. So, but over the next year, God really changed the stuff. He was changing me just as much as he was changing him, and it became more about us than about us separately. Everything was different. Yeah, when, when Ronnie talks about the kind of the gospel, uh, you know, our marriage reflecting the gospel, uh, we can definitely see that in our second marriage. And the fact, like, when we got married, I mean, just from a, you know, like as God views up, I mean, I didn't deserve Gina. I mean, 
everything I had put her through and where we were at. And as a step of faith, she made the decision through, through you know, relying on God to, to take me back. And through then God working, like, like she said, in both of our lives individually, so that I wasn't looking to her and saying, gosh, she's not doing this, she's not doing that, you know, you're not making me feel this way. And same for her looking at me, kind of each of us individually looking towards God, right? Now, that doesn't mean we don't still struggle today because sure. we still have that inclination to look, I mean, all of us who are married, look to our spouse, expecting them to meet our needs in whatever ways. Uh, but uh, as, as, you've, as you've talked about here, it's uh, when we first and foremost turn to, to God to fill us up instead of us filling ourselves up. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It's, thank you guys very much. We'll end with this thought. Men, when you think about what Christ has called you to be in marriage, let me ask you the question. You think you're that good of a man? The answer is you're not. And ladies, when you think about all that Christ has called you to reflect and be in marriage, Do you think you're that good of a woman? And the answer is you're not. The only way we have gospel reflecting marriages is when we are living in the gospel. It is your only hope for your marriage. That alone is what produces situations like this. Sinful tendencies and things have to be cut out, and yet we still have the capacity to love them even when they're unlovable. I mean, Brian was an unlovable man. I mean, it gets worse than just going to Baylor, right? And so, I mean, he, he is an unlovable guy in the middle of that. And what gives the capacity, the, okay, listen to this. The gospel is what gives the capacity in you, the power in you to love people when they're unlovable. See, th- this is our problem in marriage, is we are looking for, for things in our marriage and in our spouse that they could never give us. If you're looking to your spouse for meaning, significance, lasting joy, all those things, they'll never consistently do it for you. And until you look at God through the gospel to give you all of those things, we'll always shipwreck, we'll strangle our marriages. We put a burden on our wife or our husband that they can never carry. But when we start to look at God through the lens of the gospel, What we are and what we have in the gospel, it frees us to love our wives, our husbands, even when there's nothing in them to love. Even when. Well, imagery here. Picture on the way home today, you have a wreck and your spouse breaks their neck and is paralyzed from the neck down. They can't feed themselves, dress themselves, go to the bathroom by themselves. They can't anything by themselves. They have nothing that they can give you. I mean, there's no way they're going to give you a lot of stuff here. How would God call you to love them? He would call you to wake up tomorrow with a resolve to joyfully display the gospel and how you love them. And listen, some of you are in that situation, but your spouse isn't paralyzed, right? The gospel is the only thing that will give you the capacity to do that.
Because you're finding what you need in God so you are freed to love people with no strings attached, even if they don't love you back. This is the way I like to say it with Laura and I. Um, I, I tell people that I don't need Laura in our marriage and she doesn't need me in my marriage. We need God in our marriage. And when we find what we need in God, it frees me then to love and enjoy Laura in a God-glorifying way. That's the hope. The gospel's it, right? Let's pray. First thing I say um, at a wedding, look at the congregation. This is, this is the word they get. Pray that this couple will be abnormal. Here's the second thing they get. Pray that this marriage that you see today, this temporary marriage, would be a great reflection of the ultimate marriage. Man, I pray that for you. I hope it for you. I hope it for us. This is how we preach the gospel to our community, first and foremost. To your kids, to your friends. You want to be different as a guy? Speak well of your wife on the golf course, right? That's a rare find. This is how we preach the gospel. We live, lay down our lives in our marriages. So, so here's, here, we'll just kind of finish with this today. Um, nobody expects you to have a perfect marriage. And typically what happens is nobody goes for help until their marriage has imploded. Don't be that guy. Don't be that lady. No one expects it to be perfect. If you need help, get help. If God is calling you to repent of selfishness and sin in your marriage, repent and run to God. And over these next couple of weeks, here's what I want to specifically ask everyone in here to do this marriage. Will you make sure you have people around your life that can speak into your marriage? Men, get people around your marriage that can tell you when your marriage is off. Ladies, that can tell you when your marriage is off. I'm going to plead with you to do that this week. And have a good conversation with your wife this week. Figure out where you are in your marriage. Ask your wife, where, where can I improve? Where can I lay down my life for you? Wives, ask your husbands. But where are areas that need to be improved? They've probably got some. You've probably got some. So God, we pray for the power of your spirit that you would shine a light on the gospel's effect on marriage. And God, it would be beautiful to us. God, that we would want it, that we would live in it. God, that we would be a great gospel display in our marriage. It's got to pray that for my friends in this room. God, and we know that that is something only you can do in us. So God, we pray for your activity in this room. Cause repentance. Help us to run to you. God, I pray for that. It's in your good name. Amen. Why don't you stand and we'll sing this last song.